Jim, did you know that DMG Mori actually manufactures machine tools in the United States? As a matter of fact, I did because I had the pleasure of touring their front in Germany factory a few months ago. That's not the United States. That's not. But I learned about their uh, manufacturing facility in Davis, California. They they do manufacture five-axis machines there. Yeah, and we're going to be able to see some of those machine tools at the DMG Mori Innovation Days, May 15th through the 18th, Monday through Thursday from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. You need to get signed up now at makingchips.dmgmori.com. Dot com. Absolutely. It's it's coming up really quick. As a matter of fact, I think it's going to be next week. It's 15 minutes from O'Hare International. It's right down the street. Their, their facility is state of the art. I've been there quite a few times. Uh, the DMG Mori culture is off the hook. And um, it's going to be like a mini IMTS. So get out there. Come see us. We're going to be there. Yeah. You want to hear one other cool thing? Is that I do. They're, they're actually going to give away an Indy 500 race weekend experience. So you have a chance to win an Indy 500 race weekend. That's That'd pretty be cool. cool. What if we won it? Would you go? Yeah, of course. That'd be, awesome. That'd be outstanding. I love it. Make sure we get registered. Makingchips.dmgmori.com. Register now. Yeah. As a CEO, you're going to have to look and do jobs that you don't enjoy. But that's the role of the CEO. You have to deal with different things in the organization at a higher level to actually direct the growth of the organization rather than do the things that are safe and easy and feel important that you're actually hiring employees to do on your behalf. If the sound of a machine tool removing metal gets your blood pumping, then you are Metal Working Nation. This is Making Chips, where we talk all things metalworking, engineering and design, production and tooling combined with business best practices, technology, marketing, news, and new media for manufacturing professionals. Here are your hosts, business owners, metalworking experts, and guys who get dirty on the factory floor, Jim Carr and Jason Zanger. Now, let's make some chips. Hello, Metalworking Nation. Jim here at Making Chips. I am thrilled that you took the time to tune in for another episode of Making Chips, where we equip and inspire manufacturing leaders. I'm coming to you live, L-I-V-E, from our downtown River North Chicago studio. I'm sitting across the table from my good friend and my co-host, Mr. Jason J.Z. Zinger. How you doing, bud? Good, Jim. How are you? I'm good. I'm in a great mood. That's great. Yeah. I'm excited for our guest today. I know. I, I knew you were going to like Andrea uh, the minute I started talking to her. She's she's aligned with all the things that Jason Zanger is and you like to talk about. So uh, it's all good. And I'm I'm thrilled to have her with us today. I'm surprised you didn't say it's all good in the hood or something like that. You I know, didn't you say to be no, in that kind of no, mood. I'm a little too old to say it's all good in the hood. But uh, well, before we did. even before we even start talking with Andrea, um, do you have any manufacturing news for us? I do, as a matter of fact. You know, I always am Googling uh, manufacturing news, um, reading through all the the headlines. And again, again, on Bloomberg, uh, I'm seeing that uh, manufacturing is up again. You know, they keep saying manufacturing in U.S. kept expanding at a robust pace in March. And you know, I'm kind of an optimist, big picture guy. I like to share the good word with everybody. And I just want to, 
I, I like hearing this good stuff because, man, I'm telling you, when we had the recession, it was not pretty. And every day you went to the manufacturing news articles and it was gloom and doom. So when I look through and I scroll through and I see manufacturing keeping its pace in March, I want to scream about it. I want to let everybody know that things are good and I'm excited about the future of manufacturing. And they go on to reiterate what we talked about last week on one of our recordings at the ISM's Diffusion Index ease to 57.2, matching the median forecast for February's 57.7, which was the highest since August of 2014. Readings above 50 indicate growth. So that's all I need to know and all I need to share is keep on rocking manufacturing. I think manufacturing is back. I think we are headed for at least another 12 to 18 months of really good times. I'd love to see it back to pre-recession numbers. Um, hopefully, you know, with the new administration and uh, that optimism that we can start spending some money and just bringing it back to where um, where it should be. Because Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, and, you know, one of the things that I've said several times on making chips is, you know, yeah, those those numbers are great, but also you have to create your own destiny. I mean, you have to you have to make moves, and you can make moves despite what's going on in the industry at large. I, I remember back in the recession, and Andrew and I were talking about family dynamics a little bit. But I remember during the recession, um, fortunately, you know, he was in a position to be able to do that. My, my dad eliminated his paycheck for like a year and a half during the recession. I mean, just not going to take a pay because that's, that's, that's painful man that's uh, that's very painful and you know good thing he was able to do that and it positioned us so that you know after that recession was over we were able to really take advantage of the situation at hand better than some of our competition yeah it was ugly it was it was ugly so anyway that's my whole reason why and the metalworking nation might be saying oh jim that's all he does is he wants to talk about the good things the the optimism well if anybody remembers how bad and ugly it was yeah. back then, and all the headlines were gloom and doom, this is why I want to share all this because um, it's always good to, you're happy to live it? your life optimistically rather than negatively. Absolutely. So, what's going on with you? What's going on with your family? Things are great. I'm just, uh, I've expressed this to you, you know, a couple times. I'm just kind of tired. You know, you need a vacation, I've been, I, Jason. I need a vacation. I've been working really hard for a long time and, you know, just been kind of stressed out with a lot of stuff going on. I just, I, I, I need a little bit of a vacation. I need to relax. I need to leave my laptop at home. I need to, you, will you know, never get a good, do that. Oh, no, it's you not will true never do that. It's not true at all. Ryan, I've done it several times. Well, Jason never see. No. Ryan agrees with me. It, we know you. It's not we're true. Your, I've, I've done it your twice. business partners, man. We I've, know you. I, I've done it twice when okay. I when I went on my honeymoon. I will give you honest to God. I'm I, this is I'm going out to the. Everyone's hearing me now across the entire country. I will give you one hundred dollars if you can leave your hands off your phone for a full forty eight hours. Okay. I can do that. Okay. I'll take that deal. You got it? Yeah, I got it. The, the Before the year ends. Before, Before the year, year ends, ends, 48 hours. 48 hours. That's okay. pretty good. $500. I didn't say 500 I said 100 Oh, I, yeah. Ryan, did you hear $500? No, it's all being recorded. $100. you have got okay, more fine. money than me, so... <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but yeah, I'm just tired. I need a vacation, and, and I think that um, do hopefully it. I'm going to be... Uh, you know, with summertime coming around, I, I, one of the things I really like to do during the summertime is try to relax a little bit more and um, take a step back and enjoy my family and enjoy what, what summer in Chicago has to offer. So that's my goal. I would highly recommend it. 
and do it while the kids are young because they're going to grow up and they're going to be uh, adults and into the working world before you know it. I know. And then all that fun time is going to be gone. Mm-hmm. But it's as a matter of fact, speaking of family vacation, I just have one more thing. I just booked a family vacation with my adult children for May and... Um, I I made them pay for their own airfares, well, but good. I said I would yeah. pick up their rooms. They should, yeah. But um, I'm looking forward to it. I think it's been nine years since we've had a family vacation. That's great, and um, yeah, it'll be it'll be different. It'll be a different dynamic. Leave your sure. leave your laptop at home. No, I will not do that. You want to do that? I don't. I I like my laptop. All right. Well, let me introduce our guest. Yes, absolutely. Her name's Andrea Olson. Andrea is the CEO and founder of Pragmatic. Pragmatic works with technology companies, industrial manufacturers, and professional service companies that are facing challenges to growth and looking to make their operations more efficient and effective. She received her BA in communications and advertising at the University of Iowa and has nearly two decades of manufacturing leadership experience working in different roles for major manufacturing companies. It sounds like Andrea can really help to equip and inspire manufacturing leaders and can help us elevate our game. So welcome, Andrea. Thank you very much. Welcome, Andrea. What a pleasure to have you here in our studio today after just finally running into you and meeting you in Amelia Island at the manufacturing meeting. Um, it's great. You know, I knew right away in 30 minutes after sitting down and talking to you, you'd be an ideal person to come on the show and just equip and inspire our target audience who are manufacturing leaders. And I knew you'd get along with Jason. So at the end of the day, I've known him long enough that um, I knew this topic would be just ripe for you. Yeah. So, you know, let, let's go back to a couple of weeks ago when we were there and we sat down and you know I was I was ready to speak that afternoon I believe or maybe it was the next day and you know I I was struggling with leaving my shop for a few days because you know you always worry what's going on in my shop and you know are they are they running efficiently what kind of problems are they running into and you kind of hit a couple of pain points that I've had throughout my career being a second generation owner manager operator that um, really resonated with me and um, I thought wow I would like to know more about my own deficits I have as a leader and what I can do to kind of just tweak them and change them and make it a little better because it is always baby steps forward, right? Where we can't change the world tomorrow, but if we if we create a roadmap and and go a little bit at a time, it's going to be positive. Jim, I got a whole list of your deficits here. I've been writing them down ah. ever since I've known you. <laughs> Are you going to yeah. read them? Let's start with the first one. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Okay. <laughs> no, I, I I definitely could validate those for you, but um, yeah, but you know, with regards to running a small business, I mean. You know, Jason, we talk about it all the time. This is no secret. We all have issues. We were just, before we went, we hit the record button. We were talking about the family legacies, the problems we're having, the the issues we got to get over. When does, when do the parents say it's time to move on? And, you know, what, what, what's the major problem you're having, Jason, right now in your company that you want to share that Andrea could kind of help us dig through? Like you said before, you, issues are just something. If you're if you're running a business, you have issues. I mean, we've actually gotten to the point where we systematize the whole idea of having issues, where issues aren't for us a bad word. They're just something that we 
go through a process of, of solving as a company because there's always going to be some kind of issue that you have as a company. And you know sometimes that issue could be nothing more than, you know what do we do in order to elevate our game? What do we do to make this better? How do we serve our customers better? And it, you can turn those things into issues and solve them as a, as a leadership team or as your operations team or as your, you know, your customer service team. So we're just, we just go through that process of, of solving those issues on a, on a regular basis. And so I'm really looking forward to this conversation with Andrea so we can you know, learn how to do that better because I know she's seen a lot of stuff over the years in, in her role. You know, Jim, this just popped into my head and I wanted to tell you, I really want to see the Metalworking Nation get on board and start using data to take their business to the next level. I mean, it's just the, it's endless the possibilities there. Well, that's, you know, that's what everybody's doing. The leaders, the the leaders in the industry, uh, you know, are really pushing for that. And I I love what Machine Metrics is doing. I think it's a really viable solution to really amp up the production in your in your machine shop. Yeah, I mean, they they can take older machines or even the newer machines that are already set up to use the data um, and they can retrofit the old machines or use the existing systems in the new machines in order to really get good analytics on making chips. And for a limited time, if the Metalworking Nation goes to machinemetrics.com forward slash making chips, they can get 10% off of the machine metrics software. Yeah, it's a great deal, and I love the fact that you integrated. They'll be making more chips once they get this done. Making more chips per hour. Making more chips. That's what it's all about. So my biggest problem that I have right now is trying to let go, not trying to micromanage. I've done pretty good over the last year and a half. How do we recognize those deficits, Andrea? Can you, can you tell us a little bit about? And Jim, know, I, I do have that same issue, and yeah, I think that most leaders yeah. do. So tell us how we start recognizing those deficits, because some I'm sure there's people out there that don't even realize that they have these deficits and they need to let go. Sure, sure. It, it's you know a topic we discussed at Amelia Island, and it's something that's the hardest thing to do because. Just like a 12-step process, you have to first admit you have a problem. And until you get to that stage, no other actions are really going to be relevant. And I think the biggest challenge with most leaders today, especially second and third generation owners, is that they started in the business the way they should. They started in operations. They started at the bottom. They worked their way up. They experienced every different department in the organization. And now you're suddenly put in the position of a CEO. And the thing about being a CEO is that you have the least amount of control and all the responsibility. You can't truly control everything going on in an organization, yet you are going to be the heavy every time. Mm -hmm. And the role of a CEO is very different from a manager or even a VP, where you get a certain level of hands-on. You can have a little more directorial play. But the CEO is the visionary. The CEO is the captain of the ship. He doesn't get to turn the rudder. He doesn't work the sails. He says, we're going east. And you have to know what direction to go. So that mind shift, that mentality change has to go from I'm used to being hands-on for decades 
to suddenly now I have to be hands off and put the faith and trust in the employees Mm -hmm. that I have under my purview. Mm -hmm. So what are some easy transitional methods that 15-man machine shop in the middle of Nebraska could do? Here's that second-generation person that's been, like you said, learned every single element of he learned it from the back door to the front door. Sounds like a, a recording for me. And and you know now he's thrown into the CEO, and he's used to being in the shop running a CNC. Right, right. So what, what, what would you say like one of the first things that would be an easy transition for them to just to start practicing? So it's day one, he's in the CEO position. Mm-hmm. What would you recommend that that guy does? Step one is write a job description. What is your job? Are you picking and choosing the things that you like to do? Are you familiar with doing that you've been doing a long time that you feel no one else can do as good as you? Or is that really the role of a CEO? Jim, you know, you and I spoke and you said, I still have a hard time when I can hear a machine running, it's not calibrated correctly, to not jump out of my seat and go onto the shop floor. But as a CEO, if you were paying a third, an outside person to do that job, would you want them getting up and doing that? Absolutely not. So it doesn't matter who's in the role. It's about the role. So step one is really defining your role. You know, that is really funny that you mentioned that. So about 12 months ago, by the leadership of Jason, we were at a production meeting one day with my small team. And I went through everybody at that production meeting and typed in on a Google Doc what your role, I went through every person in the organization, wrote their name, and then wrote down their job roles and responsibilities. It was transparent. Everybody was on board. And you could actually see what each individual was doing. So it was powerful. So I, I, I've, I guess, chunk, I've done that. I've already defined my role. It's, it's just hard to separate. Sure. Yeah. And that architecture helps immensely with internal communications. Because if you feel like you're always doing a diving catch somewhere, that's because a problem in the beginning has not actually been addressed, right? There's some level of satisfaction that a lot of people get when you're doing diving catches because you feel like, I have a role here. I'm important. Look, they can't function without me because I go in and save the day. But that's the superhero mentality, right? If, they, if the operation was running effectively, you would not have to do diving catches. Right. I mean, the best leader is one that can leave for three months and the place is humming along just as if they were there every day. And the worst leader is somebody that the place stops when they're gone. And that's something that's not, you know, most people don't like to think about it that way. But that's, that's certainly the way that I, I see leadership as. Right. Which is a good segue to the second challenge, which is working on your business and not in your business. And it's very simple to say, and it's almost somewhat of a cliche, but doing the day-to-day tasks, doing the things that you've really relegated someone else in your organization to do, and you swoop in and do it as a CEO, is not only inefficient. It's not cost effective. It's not expanding the capacity of your organization. And it's not working on your business. And this is why. If you look at yourself and say, if I would pay somebody what I'm paying myself in a salary to do this job full time, would I pay that? Right? Is that's that could be any from anything from taking out the garbage to, you know, running a CNC machine. 
whatever you're paying yourself. If you're not going to pay that person to do that job, then you're throwing money away. Second is that if you're paying someone to do that job, why are you doing it for them? So if you're sucking up 10, 20, 30 hours of some worker's time, some employee's time, and you're doing their job for them, now there's diminishing returns. Let's say fully loaded an employee is costing $70,000 a year with benefits. Mm -hmm. And now you're sucking up 20% of their time by doing their job for them. So how much money are you starting to throw out? And then take that across every employee that you're touching their job, forcing them to do rework, not setting up and delegating effectively in the beginning to then have the operation run efficiently. So just taking, you know, the the practical example of, you know, you've grown up in the shop and you know how the machines work and you know what that noise is when the machine is not humming along like it's supposed to. What do you do instead of jumping out of your seat in that moment, going out there and then getting your yourself stuck in 2 hours of minutia, you know, solving that problem? I mean, because it's hard to just sit back. I think I know I know how I would answer this question, but I'd like to hear how, how you would answer it. Oh, would you like to hear how I would? <laughs> no. I know what you're going to do. You're going to go run back there and solve the problem and maybe get caught up. I'm getting better. And maybe get caught up in an hour or two hours of of minutia. So I'd like to know how Andrea would would handle that situation. Right. You're exactly right. It's the superhero complex, right? There is, you get a little endorphin rush when you go and solve a problem. It's not because it's right for the business. It's because it feels good for you. And that's okay. But you have to look at it practically from a business perspective. If you are at, let's say, you're a $50 million company today. Can you still do and support that function, that level of minutiae detail at $75 million, at $100 million? You're not going to be able to. You're going to have to let go at some point. So really, it honestly comes down to discipline. As a CEO, you're going to have to look and do jobs that you don't enjoy. But that's, that's the role of the CEO. You have to deal with different things in the organization at a higher level to actually direct the growth of the organization rather than do the things that are safe and easy and feel important that you're actually hiring employees to do on your behalf. So, so what, what is the new way to handle that situation? Does he just sit back and listen to the noise crawl at his skin? Does he shoot a text message to his ops manager and say, I hear the noise, let me know how you're going to solve that problem. I mean, what's the, what's the, what's the best thing to do, you think? So think, think of your organization as uh, it always has to be continually improving, right? The way I like to frame it is a teaching organization because things change, organizations change, people come in and out, technologies come in and out, and you have to always be teaching, always be learning. If your organization has a hierarchy, if you're large enough to have second and third tier managers within your organization, you've hired them to do a job. So there has to be a level of observation and ongoing training and a feedback loop to help them do their job better. There are some things that are going to potentially fall off the cliff, if you will, things that are going to go wrong, things that are going to break. But the best way to describe this analogy is looking at it from, let's say, a parent-child perspective. You know your child is going to fail at some point at something. You know they're going to do something wrong. Maybe they're going to cost you a little bit more money on something that you really didn't want them to. But your job as a parent is to teach them, guide them, and help them make better, smarter decisions each time they have to make that decision. So as an employee, it's not that you've hired a robot because if you have, you might as well buy a robot. 
they do just fine at repetitive work. But if you've hired a person that has a brain and independent thought, you need to help them learn how to problem solve. You need to help them be a better employee. You might not be able to do that with everyone in your organization, but you need to teach that first tier of leaders to be better leaders themselves. That's a very good point. And I like that you brought up the the whole parenting yeah. analogy. I whenever we have our our, our leadership meetings, I always um, use those parenting analogies like in our team and, and talk about how that relates to business and communication. I'm always talking about, oh, well, this is the mistake I made in communicating with my wife. And you know, this is how we, we need to make sure we communicate better here too, because we have this, you know, very close relationship and we need to communicate with each other. Better. Sure. But how many times do you fill in the holes unintentionally? If you take an employee, you know that they have this set of skills and experience, but that doesn't mean they have leadership experience. That doesn't mean they're effective at delegating. It doesn't mean they're effective at all these soft skills. Oh, right. You know yeah, that on the resume, they're, yeah. they're set in this area, but what are their deficiencies? And if you don't know where those areas are, you can't help them. All you can do is see where problems occur and then come in from left field and do a dive and catch and not really actually address the core issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I want to move on a little bit because I think it always go. it's going back to culture again and how culture is so important. We talk about it all the time. Jason was my mentor on this. Tell us how culture fits in with being a better manufacturing leader and what steps can small businesses take to amp up their culture, change their culture, or, well, Jason always says you can't change culture. You have to define it and practice yeah, I, it. I, I would say that, yeah, you, you, you have to define it, and then you need to look at where, you know, maybe there's people that just aren't a part of the culture, and it's probably more obvious to your team than it, than it is to you who doesn't fit. It, it's hard because a lot of people want to define culture. Mm-hmm. And it's somewhat of an abstract concept that can change continually depending on how much attrition you have with employees. And that culture is really shaped by the bodies in it, right? It's your tribe. Mm -hmm. Think about uh, your close friend network. You know, if you have a close group of friends, that culture is in and of itself inextricably its own, right? And if you bring a new person into that group, let's say you have a close group of five friends, you bring a new person in, that new person starts to change that culture a little bit. It's not dramatic, but they're bringing in a new perspective. Mm -hmm. They're bringing in a new background. They might be bringing in um, a lot of different elements that you didn't even know about. And so as new people come into the organization, they're starting to shape that culture. So with this analogy with close friends, you don't start off by defining your friend culture, right? Though, you have to define what your purpose is as friends, right? Is, are these drinking buddies? Is that what we do? Are we sports buddies? Do we go out to games together? What is our purpose as a group? And then every individual in that group has their own role. If you, if you look at your buddy system, you know, okay, that guy's the funny one. That guy's the one that, you know... That's the attracts guy that always all the girls. The, he always gets yeah. the. He always has that extra drink, right? Yeah. It's the one that's you know a little on the fringe and you know sometimes gets in trouble. You have all those people, so take that and scale it to an organization. Now your friends are 20, 50, 60, and they all have very specific roles in your culture. 
So at the end of the day, you have to decide what are you trying to accomplish? And it all comes from the top down. I know that a lot of people feel culture should be grassroots and that employees should have their, they do have their own microcultures within different departments. But the leaders in the organization are setting the pace, right? They're setting the pace on whether feedback is welcomed versus just kind of for show. If communication is genuine, if the organization truly has a direction or this is something where it's temporary, I'm just going to be here for a little while and leave. I've seen organizations that actually had a culture where they said, we plan to each quarter take the bottom 1% of performers, and this happened to be in the sales department of the organization, and fire them. And that's what they did every quarter. So there was a culture of if you're at the top, you aggressively stay at the top. That wasn't moving the organization forward. That was infighting, people competing with each other and making sure they made a sale just to make sure they secured their job. Doesn't mean that there was a profit margin in the sale. Doesn't mean it was a long-term customer. Doesn't mean even the customer was satisfied. They were trying to keep their job. And the bottom, the middle percentage, right, the 98%, all they lived in was fear. Because they said, well, I just want to not be in the bottom 1%. I just need to make enough to not be in that Mm -hmm. chopping block. So from a culture perspective, just that one simple example, it'll drive behavior within the organization. Absolutely. Well, it's it's hitting home with me a lot, what she's saying, but um, I totally get it. So what have you seen in your experience some setbacks? So we got all these great ideas and it's great to delegate and great culture and what can people listening do to mitigate these setbacks when they try to create this culture or really truly step into that CEO role and make it profound? You know, some of the biggest setbacks I've seen have been because of organizational status quo. So even if the CEO turned over a new leaf and said, I want to do things different, they have people within the organization that have been used to a pattern for a very, very long period of time. And those people don't want things to change. They're quite comfortable in their role. They feel valuable in that role. And it doesn't mean that that role isn't important to the organization, but maybe the way they operate in that role could be more efficient could be more effective, could take less steps. Maybe they could take on something new and do two different types of jobs at the same time. And at the end of the day, it would be better for them and be better for the organization. But they push back and try to keep things calm, keep things consistent. And what I've seen is a lot of what you might call lifers in family organizations have found ways to make the argument to say, we don't need to change this. And even if the CEO has started to push a new idea, they will get worn down over time by those people trying to retain what they think is the way business should be done and the way we've always done things. Mm-hmm. That's, da- that's a dangerous dialogue. That's a very dangerous dialogue. Yeah, that is. I know at my company, we always, on a, on a yearly basis, we kind of, and I mentioned this to you before, Jim, 
we you know look at our company from a fresh perspective and say you know are these things that we're doing the best thing for the future vision that we want to achieve and if they're not we need to we need to talk about you know how do we change this and you know we're always looking at you know what's what's our scorecards as a company and we don't let people sit on their laurels and and do the same thing that they've always done that's just not a part of our culture i guess you would say see but to your point that is inherent to the culture. Mm-hmm. It's something that you do. It's something everybody's used to. And it's a standard of behavior that everybody conforms to. So I'll, I'll give you a great example. There's a uh, forging company uh, back in the Quad Cities. And uh, they brought in a new CEO. And he saw an opportunity for change and modernization. And one of the first things he did was look at the manual processes that they had in the front of the house, things that were being done on carbon paper things that were being done in Excel spreadsheets, things that were done by fax. And they wouldn't give up their carbon paper. So what happened is he evaluated a few ERP systems, right? It's not, nothing very robust, very rudimentary, just a simple, simple automation system. He actually took the time to look at what it was going to be used for, how it would impact employees, and gave a presentation on what they were doing, why they were doing it, how it was going to change, and what opportunities there were for employees to embrace this new system before it was installed. And that same day, he had three people that were 25-year veterans of the company quit. Because and they didn't want to make a change at all. They did not want to change. You know what? That and was that's what the they verbalized. Thing. That was the best thing that they could have done is quit. Because at the end of the day, those 25-year lifers were holding that company back. Absolutely. And it, you, you have those kind of people in your company, and you just have to, you, you have to plow through. You either have to plow them down, or they have to move away. Well, and I think capacity. you also have to, you have to you have to question what people's roles are, and you have to say, you know, well, what it, how does this add to the vision that we have and the direction that we're going, and you know, is this is this important to the company, and reevaluate what people are doing. I mean, everybody's got to work lean nowadays. Well, and if you're if you're in your comfort zone and you've always relied on Susie to do this job, and as the CEO or a VP or any other person in the organization, unfamiliar on how that job is done, there's an inherent fear of taking them out. And they could be in a position where they're, they're processing invoices or they're doing something that could be automated and could be more accurate. And maybe Susie could be in a role where she feels a little more fulfilled and she's a little more challenged and she can actually expand. But it feels like it's so critical because it's unfamiliar. And that's the thing is that Leaders in the organization, I'm not saying just CEOs, but leaders in the organization need to familiarize themselves with every single role in the company. That doesn't mean you're going to go weld something out on the shop floor, but you need to understand the process from soup to nuts on how a product's made. You need to understand soup to nuts, how the accounting process works. You need to understand purchasing, customer service, rental if you have it. So then you can identify areas where you can improve, where you can be lean, that might not be on the manufacturing floor. Because the biggest gap today in mid-market manufacturers is that their front of the house is not lean. It's extremely manual. It is the carbon paper. Really? Yes. That's the, one of the biggest. It, really, that's the, one of the pl- places that there's the most deficiencies 
is in the front of the house. Yes. If you're looking at mid-market manufacturers, well, let's say that's going to range from $20 million to $500 million in revenue, annual revenue. Over 65% no kidding. of these companies, and if you think small machine shops, right? right you're okay. thinking it could be, could be a two-man shop with a really you know, robust uh, OEM account, right? Uh, but usually it's going to be about 40, pe- 40 people, 50 people. These organizations are using Windows 97. These organizations are managing customer data in multiple Excel spreadsheets on on remote drives within the company or on personal laptops. Uh, I'll tell you a story that uh, one of the companies we worked with uh, was a global manufacturer, eight locations across, across the globe, $750 million in revenue. And we worked to install a CRM system, just wanted to centrally house customer information, not trying to get into monitoring, not being the mothership overlord. We just want to mitigate risk by understanding where our customers are, and their contact information. This $750 million global company, we had field sales personnel faxing in photocopies of business cards. Oh, my gosh. So the risk to that company of not having that information stored in one place is huge. So if you look at the smaller companies... The, the mom-and-pop shops, the ones that are out in remote areas of small-town USA, there was no incentive to modernize and no reason. And being familiar with certain processes and platforms makes you efficient, right? Well, I know I could do 15 clicks and I've got what I need. Boom, right. And so it's actually harder at first and longer at first to make that five clicks because I have to learn a new software system and it slows things down. And so as decades have passed... Now, these companies are not just five years behind, they're 25 years behind. And every year, it's an exponential gap. For every year they don't modernize, that's another three years behind. And that's just going to get faster and faster. I agree with that for sure. I, I, I've seen in the last five years how... Fa- look, look, at our, look at cell phone technology. Oh my gosh. I mean, I remember 15 years ago, I had that big, ugly, chunky... Jason, you probably don't even remember those. Remember those big things? They look like a shoe. Yeah, I, rem- yeah. I remember my dad had a like a box phone in his car. Yeah, yes, my dad too. But I mean, I think the cell phone technology is just like blown up. I mean, everybody uses them. It's part of our life. It's attached to us, and you have to force yourself to stay on top of the technology. So, wow, good good stuff. Do you have any? final questions, Jim, that that we want to ask Andrea? How about three bullet points that a manufacturing leader can start doing tomorrow to be a better manufacturing leader? If we're narrowing it down to three bullet points, I would say first is going to be taking the time to do a little introspection. Understand not only what your role is, we talked about writing a job description, But being honest and asking yourself, is that the job I want? Do I want to be a CEO? There are a lot of different roles in the organization where somebody who, let's say, is second or third generation still wants to be the leader of the organization, but maybe operationally, they're not completely willing or capable to do so. It might require you looking at having a third party CEO come in and run the operation 
You could become president. You could become chairman of the board. You can become king of all CNC machines. It's whatever you like. But you have to be practical and say for the health of the business and the growth of this business long term, where am I best suited? Not just what role do I play now? I would say secondly, it's important for a leader to understand, as we talked about extensively, the culture and environment that they are working in and where you want to take it. And that's it. that requires some candid discussions where you're working with your, your VPs or your mid-level managers or even folks on the shop floor and understanding the nitty-gritty of your organization's culture, right? How do people truly feel? And you're going to get, if they're willing to be honest and you can give them that channel, candid feedback on, you know, the fact that your baby's ugly, right? <laughs> and you have to be willing to, to look at it from a practical perspective and say, this is useful feedback. This is actionable information. So asking them for that information and also gaining their opinion, but building that relationship. So you're starting to change the culture just by taking one-on-one time with at least the core individual leadership in your organization, if not everyone. I would say number three, and maybe most importantly, is that organizational leaders have to look at themselves as entrepreneurs again. If you've been handed, and I don't want to say handed flippantly, but you've grown up in a company, you are now leading the company, there's an obligation to grow and expand the success of that company, not for own just personal gain, but for the surrounding community and economy, especially if you're in your small town, and all the employees under your hire and their families. Being a leader and running and owning a company is a huge responsibility. It goes beyond just the P&L statement. And being entrepreneur is going back to the roots of maybe your grandfather or great-grandfather who started the company and saw an opportunity in the market and worked through finding a way to push through competition, push through market swings, and having that fire and drive. And I think a lot of CEOs today, and I I don't want to overstate it, have a level of comfort. Things are running along smoothly. You might have a few OEM accounts. You might have a couple long-term contracts, and you don't have to scrap and fight as much. You ride the downturns, and you accept them as part of life until the upswing happens in industry A, B, or C. But the difference is going to be those organizations that are continually learning, innovating, and improving and listening to the market rather than the ones that are riding the wave that will succeed. And all CEOs, as we go back to the beginning, are inherent leaders of their organization, and that's where they have to have their finger on the pulse. Very good. I think that's great. And it's kind of fortunate and unfortunate, but I I feel like my entire time that I've been in manufacturing, 
it's always been, and I started off in that recessionary period. So I've always felt like I always had to just fight every single day. And I never really just even thought about like, you know, riding along. I'd love, I'd love to actually have a year where I'm just riding along. That would be wonderful. It will happen. I guarantee. <laughs> I hope so. But no, it will happen. But, but you're, but you're, you're, as you're, long as you have tenacity, it yeah, will happen yeah. because eventually things change. Yeah. And I, I have, eventually things change. Right. Yeah. Th- things do change. And I think you're right, Andrea, just, you know, that entrepreneurial drive. And, and like you said, Jim, that that tenacity and that grit to keep going is is what's going to make the biggest difference. Yeah. So with that, um, thank you, Andrea. What a pleasure to see you today. Have you live in our studio? Yes, thank you. Share Jim. the good word, and uh, I'm positive we've equipped more than just a few uh, manufacturing leaders today. I'm sure. I'm sure it's uh, been. It's always of, insightful. It's hit, a, it's hit a couple of emotions, I'm sure, because it, it did for me. But um, you're just an emotional guy, Jim. Yeah, I, sometimes I, I do get that way, but uh, especially when it's about my business and about when you're really trying to do something, you get emotional about it, right? So, uh, yeah, but, um, you know, as I always say at the end of the show, we don't know it all. You know, we all we know is what we know and the wisdom and the experiences we've lived through in our respective businesses for the last two, three decades or whatever it's been. And we're just we're just fortunate to be the conduit to take all the people that we've met, like Eric, like Andrea, like Julie Poulis, and just share all those knowledgeable inform that knowledgeable information with with the general public and um it's all about giving back, man. Yeah, it's you know? all about giving back and elevating manufacturing leaders and just equipping and inspiring them. You bet. So, you know, if anybody has any comments about this particular show, they know how to get a hold of us, 312-725-0245. Don't forget to check out the Making Chips TV YouTube series. Pretty easy to find. Just remember, Making Chips is one word. If you want to send us an email, Jim at, Ryan at, Jason at, makingchips.com. We're there. We talk. We answer emails. Connect with us on LinkedIn. Andrea Olson. Also, you could connect with her as well on LinkedIn. And with that, I'm done. I've, I've talked enough today. Yes, you have, Jim. I yeah. always get enough of your talking. Yes. Bam. Bam. This podcast exists to improve the manufacturing industry. We want to hear from you, the owners, managers, leaders, and engineers from the metalworking nation. What ideas do you want to share and what keeps you up at night? We want you to take something away from this podcast that you can use to improve your company, your team, and yourself. So let us know what you want to hear, and we'll see you next time on Making Chips. I'm sitting across the table from my good friend, my co-how, co- <laughs> You're doing so well. I was doing so well. <laughs>